This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for Episode 3 of Focus on the Research Journal. Right now, every scientist in the world is drafting a manuscript. It's in labs everywhere that progress is made in the research. It's in journals everywhere that progress is made in the research. The research journal is the venue for scientists because the research article is the genre for scientists. The next questions in the research and the ensuing attempts at answers of the research never appear in books. Journals are where scientific research gets negotiated into knowledge. And to make a journal, it takes at least five, the executives, the editors, the reviewers, the readers, and of course, the authors. And it is these same five who make the interview guests here at Scholarly Communications focus on the research journal. This is the talk that makes known the knowledge of science. Today's guest is Daniel Baldnick, editor-in-chief of The American Naturalist and professor of evolution and ecology at the University of Connecticut. Since its inception in 1867, the American Naturalist has maintained its position as one of the world's premier peer-reviewed publications in ecology, evolution, and behavior research. This monthly journal is devoted to furthering the objectives of the American Society of Naturalists. To advance our understanding of evolution, ecology, behavior, and other broad biological disciplines toward the conceptual unification of the biological sciences. Thus, the journal welcomes manuscripts that develop new conceptual syntheses, pose new and significant problems, introduce novel subjects to the readership, or change the way people think about a topic. Manuscripts are evaluated for their interest in the broad international readership of researchers in organismal biology. The American naturalist emphasizes sophisticated methodologies and innovative theoretical syntheses all in an effort to advance the knowledge of organic evolution and other broad biological principles. Authors publishing with the American Naturalist consider the journal the gold standard because of the skill and professionalism of the entire editorial process. Every next contribution to the American Naturalist appears beside papers that have shaped the field with their extraordinary and lasting impact. 
every next contribution might become just such a paper in The American Naturalist. So let's begin the conversation. Daniel Balmick and The American Naturalist. Dan, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you for having me on. Um, as you've just heard, as the listeners have just heard in my brief intro there, the um, American Society of Naturalists places some value on cultivating a conversation across disciplines. Because today, I'm sure many people know in the biological sciences, it can very be very easily be viewed as a collection of subdisciplines, some working next to each other without even speaking, you might say, the same language. Um, I suppose my first question would be, how is it that the American naturalist advances this society goal of the cross-disciplinary? That's an excellent question. And I'd say a, a great deal of the, the interdisciplinary nature really depends on the, the creativity of the authors. One of the fundamental things that I've learned as editor is we have the option to publish the things that people choose to send us for consideration. But ultimately, it really is the authors who are coming up with the ideas and are uh, building bridges between formerly disparate silos in academia. Um, and so really, my role and the role of the journal is to be an accepting place that people understand is open to interdisciplinary and, and conceptually innovative ideas. Um, but ultimately, it's not like we're the funders who are giving out research grants to encourage. So we're really at, at the, the tail end of the process. So I think it primarily comes down to a matter of trying to communicate to the broader community that we're receptive to uh, collaborative interdisciplinary work. You say some really interesting things there. You give us also a nice overview of the entire process, research, all the way down to paper, um, published paper. For example, this idea that you're not on the funding end, you find yourself at the tail end of where the research then actually gets known, gets gets publicized, published. Um, could could you perhaps explore that that process from an editor's point of view? And I'm sure also as a researcher, who you are as well. Yeah, of course. So ultimately, most of the research that happens in biology takes money. It takes salaries to pay people who are doing the work or travel money to go to remote places to collect samples or sequence things. Um, and so a great deal of what dictates the kind of research that happens these days is really happening at the funding end of things. And so to be really interdisciplinary or innovative or move biology or science in general in a new direction fundamentally requires risk-taking at the funder or donor stage of the process. Um, and then the authors have to do the work, of course, and, and write it up in a clear way. And journals really are ultimately a receptacle where these things get placed. And our job is to try and make sure that the things that we're promoting are sound and clear and readable. And then the other role of journals is uh, to, to create a venue where people learn to expect a certain flavor of work. So if I'm interested in uh, immunology, as I am, I'll go to an immunology journal to learn about that material and not to... Um, an ecology journal. And so the table of contents of a journal are, in a sense, 
a collection of things that we believe will be of interest to readers. Um, and so readers know to come to our table of contents or get our alerts to see the things that we think they'd like. Um, and so in a sense, it's almost analogous to if you go on to an online shopping forum um, and you are considering buying a product, there are stars next to that product. And you can say, show me the things that are highly rated by a lot of users uh, who are who share certain characteristics with me. Um, that's a, in a sense what we do is we say, well, we're putting a lot of stars next to this set of papers because we think you'll appreciate them. And by you, we mean our subscribers, the members of the society, and the people who habitually look to our journal. And one of the funny things about this whole process, then, is that we don't really dictate what we receive. Um, I can try and beat the bushes and solicit submissions in certain areas, but that's a very slow-moving ship. The former managing, managing editor of the American Naturalist once told me that a journal is like a cargo ship traveling in the ocean. And if you want to change direction intellectually, you have a momentum. And that momentum is going to keep carrying you in the same direction that you've been going. And it's really quite hard to turn and head off in a new intellectual direction. And a lot of that's just because it's all about what our prospective authors expect that we'd be interested in publishing. You say some really fascinating things in there, uh, which which I think for some authors and especially early career researchers is going to give them a slightly new perspective on the editor that they're corresponding with, the journal that they go uh, seek out to then first publish in or to publish their fifth or sixth article in, um, because this image of the the stars next to uh, the different topics in uh, you know the contents of of, a, of an issue. The idea that uh, journals throughout the world of, of scientific publishing are, let's say, conglomerations of reader interests, of and reader means also researcher interests, right? The, the I mean, the the metaphor has been used of a conversation, yeah, that in different communities, sub communities of a. Uh, fields, take biology, right, is divisible in all kinds of different ways and is divided up in all kinds of different ways that these are all separate conversations. They overlap here and there, um, but clearly the focus of some of those conversations is quite intense in some areas. And, and, and I think you give us a new way of looking at it, this idea of the preferences that, that the users of the journals, that the researchers who need that journal are actually then using the journal for. Um, my, my, my question is, one thing I certainly wanted to ask you today is, what is the role of the journal today? And you've, you've slightly answered it, but perhaps you can just revisit it quickly. The role of the journal today where so many people are used to looking at sort of um, aggregate search results for different, uh, for, for various topics that they're interested in their research and, and may not notice the abbreviated uh, symbol that means American naturalist or I don't know, insert any other, <laughs> any other uh, journal in there. It, that's a fascinating question because there is a great deal of discussion happening in the broader academic community of why do we have journals today? Because I could just write something and I could format it and drop it on my website or drop it on a preprint server and walk away and say it's now accessible to the world. Um, and so... The role of journals today is being challenged in a real way that 
I could imagine a scenario in which five years from now, most journals don't exist. And most people don't publish their scientific work in journals. And I honestly, as editor, I, of course, feel an obligation to uh, be a, a uh, a protector of the institution that I'm, I'm heading up, especially one that's over 150 years old. I feel a, a weight of history behind that. And, and yet I'm a little sympathetic to some of the concerns that people raise about how journals operate. But I do see some genuine value added. And one of those value added elements is that conversation that happens between the editor and the reviewers and the authors that I genuinely believe when it's done well, improves the quality of the product. Um, Authors like to gripe, and I've griped at times as an author that, well, the reviewers didn't understand what I was getting at, or they want me to do something that's not what I want to do. And yeah, that happens. And yes, reviewers and editors sometimes misunderstand or get things wrong or they have a different agenda. But my experience, and I've handled well over a thousand papers as editor at this point, um, is that the typical interaction leads to a more uh, focused product when we say, well, you know, you're taking 30 pages to talk about something you could really say in 15 or 20. Um, or we identify errors of logic that can be corrected, or we identify often points where something just isn't clearly communicated. And we'll go back and forth as many times as is necessary, which is frustrating for everybody at times, until we feel like the product is clear enough that our readers are going to understand it readily. And so we're really trying to be this bridge that represents a standard reader. When I'm evaluating a paper, I'm not an expert in that paper's subject. And that's a good thing because I represent, in a sense, the the everyday Joe Schmo who might be approaching the journal um, and trying to understand how might a typical reader who's not one of the world experts in this particular subject of this particular aspect of bird behavior, uh, can I understand why this is relevant and important and understand the context of the results clearly? And so um, we really try and be that bridge that helps authors improve. Uh, there is something special as well to when we accept a paper, we have an excellent, excellent team of copy editors who really do improve the grammar and clarity of the phrasing for many authors. Um, we have uh, editorial staff who help authors work on the figures and improve the figure clarity a little bit. And then we typeset it, and it just looks gorgeous. And and that's that aesthetic element um, seems very trivial from an objective scientist learning the truth of the world kind of standpoint, but it does impact how we approach reading a paper and and the, the feeling that we get as we read it. And then lastly, yes, we serve as a uh, signpost to say, here's a collection of papers that I think you as a community will find interesting. Um, and that stamp of approval, I think, carries weight. And then the last thing that I'll add, circling back again, is that a journal that people respect, like the American Naturalist, 
um, where people, our authors, experience an intensive, constructive review process. So when we ask them to be reviewers, they put a little bit extra in. And I have to say that I've I've written many papers of my own and I've published in the American Naturalist before I was editor and in other journals as well. And some journals, I consistently get deep, thorough, careful comments from reviewers. In other journals, I get a paragraph. And I truly believe that reviewers put different levels of effort into examining a paper depending on the value that they place in the journal. And so there have been calls for people to just put papers on bioarchive and leave it at that. Um, And people could volunteer to review and provide comments. But I think that as an institution, we uh, we draw on people's um, value in the institution to pull out a little bit of extra depth to the commentary that they give, which helps our authors more. This word institution is um, really quite apt, I find, because you, you've just given, I think, very many people, me for, for, for certain, an interesting view into um, the review process. The idea that and you've thoroughly answered my question as to where the journal stands nowadays. And, and, and one of those effects is the journal stands in a, in a fully articulated network of institutional effects, right? You've got the reviewers who respond apparently, perhaps very probably different to an article that are reviewing for the one venue as opposed to the other venue. And this is having a serious effect on the sorts of uh, science that comes out of it, or at least the way that that science is communicated, right? And I think that's a fascinating thing to uh, for, us, for us to learn now, because then we see, yes, the internet, uh, internet reading, the pace of uh, publishing possibilities. You mentioned a few, right? Maybe just putting it into a preprint server or something like that, um, or even just any old journal uh since it doesn't need to be actually mailed anywhere, is coming out faster. We get articles that we see before they're ready entirely for publication, even on um, some big-name journals, uh, Nature and Cell, for example. Um, and all of this is happening, and yet the from what you're saying, and, and, and please, I, I, would, I would like to hear your comments on this, the journal and the editor and the review process still stand at the center of it and still have their significant effects on the science that we understand and communicate. Absolutely. I, I see this every day. When I, when I accept a paper finally for publication after one or two or three, sometimes more rounds of revision, um, it's a different paper. And I, I genuinely believe that it is, on average, a better paper than it was when it came in the door. And I hear that from the authors as well. That's not just my opinion. I frequently get authors emailing after saying, thank you for this process. It was very helpful. Uh, One thing I didn't expect when I took on the role of editor was the thank you letters when I declined to publish things. And this shocked me. I mean, not in a bad way, but it, I, was, I was surprised. And the reason is this. We publish about 20% of the submissions that we receive on average. Um, 
those other 80%, we don't just say, no thanks. We say, no thanks, and here's why. Here's Maybe it's just not the right subject matter for our journal, or maybe we see a flaw in the underlying logic, or the, the data is just not a solid, complete enough story for us. Um, and I try on everything that we decline to give some kind of feedback that gives the authors something to walk away with, because most papers are going to get published somewhere. And so those 80%, the majority of my work is giving comments on or soliciting reviews and summarizing reviews for papers that we don't publish. And instead, those papers get submitted somewhere else, maybe reviewed again, maybe not. Um, And ultimately, they wind up published in another journal, but they've gone through a round of comments from us. And those thank you letters from the authors whose papers we reject uh, are because we're providing a service that transcends the particular institution. Um, And I think that's something that counters your comment about the journal as an institution is that the journal is just a part of a much broader institution, a consortium of many journals and papers that aren't published in one place get rejected. They move on to another place, but they bear the fingerprint of the experience that they've went, that they've gone through. And I think that's very important. Um, the other element that I want to comment on in terms of the role that journals play as an institution there was a very famous court case in the United States uh, maybe about 15 years ago, um, uh, Dover versus Kitzmiller. And the, the premise of this case was that a school district in Pennsylvania was trying to teach intelligent design, uh, a variant of creationism that's sort of a watered-down creationism to try and sidestep separation of church and state in, in the U.S. Um, legal system. And uh, this got challenged, went to court, And the federal judge, who was uh, an appointee, a conservative judge, actually, um, pointed out in his wonderfully detailed decision, where he uh, found in favor of the evolutionary biologists, um, saying intelligent design couldn't be taught in a public classroom, um, a lot of his logic rested on the role of peer review in scientific journals. He says one of the things that distinguishes creationism from science is that scientists subject their work to peer review from anonymous reviewers that are critical and trying to find the flaws in the argument um, and that that gives one more confidence in the outcome. And so I'd say beyond, oh, I'm helping my colleagues improve their paper, I'm helping my reader colleagues find papers that they'd want, there's also an element of uh, standing on the ramparts, trying to help make sure that solid science is published, but the mirror image of that is helping to distinguish the material that is not solid science, the stuff that... uh, really shouldn't have the, the, the imprint of approval from the scientific community because it's not rigorous science. That's, that's a very uh, illuminating uh, example that you give us there. And it shows um, 
quite clearly, as you say, we're not dealing necessarily with institutions. And this is why also the word of gatekeeper, I mean, you're giving us a very interesting view of what it is that the editor does. The idea of a gatekeeper is perhaps also not entirely accurate. What we're dealing with is the different various intricate levels of collaboration that go on because of the way journals work, because of the way the peer review process works, so that we end up with a science that we can call scientific at the end of the day, just as we have in the court case that you, you cited there, and a judge who might not, <laughs> let's say, politically lean in that direction must even still acknowledge. Yeah, I, I, I find the, the text of that court case, Kitzmiller versus Dover, the text of his decision is a, a beautifully written, beautifully articulated summary of what science is and how science works. And to see to see a judge with no grounding, with no training in science, uh, writing this and really invoking the the importance of peer review. So actually, when I teach about peer review in a classroom setting, I I provide passages from this court decision because it's so it's so eloquently. Uh, explained, and you brought up the phrase gatekeeper. I frequently see on social media complaints about journals and editors as gatekeepers with a really negative connotation that gatekeeping is a, a, a form of oppression, a form of, of bias. And there's no doubt that it, it can be implemented in that way at times, um, and we try very hard not to. But there is a mirror image that, yeah, I think actually there's there's things that that justify some gatekeeping attitudes, which is there are things that I don't think should be published um, on the basis of the just poorly thought out, poor logic. Um, And we've had a number of situations in the past couple of years involving scientific fraud that we've uncovered. And boy, I wish that uh, the gatekeeping had been a little more stringent that we kept some things out of the public, out of the published record beforehand rather than having to clean up a mess afterwards. This is the daily bread of an organization like Retraction Watch, who I've had here also on the program. Um, listeners will probably know. And uh, yeah, I think I think any uh, scientist uh, would be very happy not to be having those messes to clean up with. And Retraction Watch themselves say they'd rather be put out of jobs. <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you bring up two key words there. Um, Two of my favorite topics, teaching and eloquence in the court case decision, or let's just say communication in a much more uh, neutral sense. Uh, perhaps we'll start with the, the second one, the uh, communication. One of the comments you made is that through the review process, you notice that a article that is really sound science, that this needs to be getting out there and it needs to get into the American naturalist, or perhaps it's one of the 80% and it needs to get out somewhere, but you believe in, in what's being said there, but it's just not being said clearly enough. It's not reaching its readers. Um, I suppose maybe I'll circle around to my, my, my first topic, and that is the readership and the broadness of the American naturalist itself. Um, people who, like me, are in so-called EAP, English for Academic Purposes, are often talking about, right, the reader's ways of reading and understanding decide a great deal about the way the writer does what he or she is doing. 
the way he or she decides to communicate, to wrap up the data in some often called narrative, or to emphasize here and not emphasize there. I suppose what I would like to ask specifically to you as editor-in-chief of The American Naturalist is, what is clearly communicated then for your readership, a readership that doesn't adhere to merely one of the subdisciplines? This is not a journal in just immunology. That's right. Um, it's it's a great question, and it, it's a challenging one because we do have we have readers who are predominantly mathematicians, and we have readers who uh, are not at all comfortable with math, and we publish papers that are deeply technical mathematical biology and then our readers might never have taken uh, or may have never really progressed beyond a college calculus class and have forgotten as much of that as they could manage to um, and so I try and put myself in a position of opposition to a paper when I'm evaluating it, not in a negative, why should I publish this sense, as much as thinking, um, if I'm coming at this from a different background, how will I view this paper? If it's a mathematical theory paper, is it written in a way that a non-mathematician can glean the gist of the ideas? And conversely, um, or maybe it's a plant biology paper and uh, I asked myself, what's the message in here that would appeal to a zoologist and vice versa? Um, and so ultimately, these papers are technical. They have to deal with the mathematics or the technical details of the physiology or neurobiology that they're dealing with. Um, but you can create a wrapper around that technical core that, that makes it digestible. I, I like to think of it as when you're taking a medicine, um, you have the actual powder pharmacological content that you're delivering to your body, but you can wrap it in something that makes it easier to swallow. Um, and hopefully that conveys just enough of the information. And so I think the same thing is true. You can have a, a deeply technical content, but if it's bracketed, bookended, with a very clear exposition of what is it that we don't know right now? Okay, and here's what I've done, and here's how it resolves that thing that we didn't know, or the thing that we suspected we now know to be true. And that can all be conveyed in a very accessible language, ideally. And so when I started as editor-in-chief, my predecessor, Judy Bronstein, uh, taught me a, a great deal. And one of the things that she said is, look for the diamond in the rough. Look for the paper that is difficult to understand, but the idea when you get it is brilliant. And then help them make it easy to understand. And she also used an analogy of uh, seeing herself as midwifing papers into the world. Um, and that process involves more than just yes or no. It involves helping something come out and realize its potential. And so, and I'd say that a lot of our associate editors get that distinction as well. And we couldn't do what we do without this group of 70 odd 
really dedicated associate editors who often write longer commentaries on a paper than the reviewers do. We'll get a page or two from each reviewer, and then the associate editor is writing three or four pages of detailed feedback. And it's because they're telling me, yeah, this is a diamond in the rough. This is Here's the thing that's beautiful, but we really have to fix the wrapper to make it uh, digestible. And what you said earlier uh, comes to mind again when you're taking that advice from your uh, predecessor, this idea that you you like being able to situate yourself as the non-expert. You, you talked about a, a, a certain type of opposition, and, and very often you do find yourself in the position of not being somebody who's expert in the, uh, in the um, topic that's being written about in a particular submission. And... As an EAP professional, as somebody who works in English for academic purposes, this is a position that we all find ourselves in all the time. <laughs> We're trying to help scientists write without being scientists. Um, so it's it's very heartening to hear that uh, you can actually be at a communicative advantage when you're, let's say, a step or two or maybe an entire yard <laughs> uh, outside of, of the field that's being written about. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's exactly the same reason why when I write a manuscript the first time, myself as an author, I try and show it to somebody who's not been intimately involved in the research. Um, that that distance provides a level of perspective that helps one see the weaknesses, the lack of clarity. Something can seem utterly crystal clear to me because I've been thinking about it for two years, planning it, doing the research, thinking about the data analyses, and then thinking about writing it and then writing it. And to me, it's absolutely obvious. Um, But to an outsider, maybe not so much. And so that distance really provides a crucial step. And I think that's getting back to one of your earliest questions, what do journals do for us? Well, one thing that they do is they bring in a group of people to look at your paper who are not uh, living and breathing it on a day-to-day basis, and that's beneficial. Mm, yeah, no, clearly it is. And 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 one follow-up question to that is the um, cross-disciplinary disciplinarity, the interdisciplinarity. Uh, you you talked about that it, it's important if you're not a deep maths person that you also still get the beginning and ending of this story about hard equations. Um, I wonder on a broader scale, because I mean, you're standing really at the, at a, at a wonderful vantage point to be able to see things like this at a broader scale, how, how important is interdisciplinarity becoming to all sorts of research areas? Or to flip the question, uh, take any perspective you like on the question, but to flip the question maybe from the author's perspective, how much do they need, say, in their abstract or in their introduction to be thinking about widening their context to include perhaps not their most obvious suspects? That's a good question. The, The short answer is, Whenever you do research, you should have in mind who your target audience is. Um, My lab primarily works on a small fish called the three-spine stickleback, and we can sometimes do a project because we want to know something very particular about this fish that would be of interest to other people who study this one species. Um, 
or I could be doing research that would be of interest to fish biologists in general, or I could be doing something that's of interest to immunologists in general, but maybe not to most fish biologists. And so knowing your audience matters a great deal, and partly that then determines what journal do I send this to. Some of the work in my lab, we send for publication to immunology journals, and some we send to ecology journals, and some we send to genetics journals. And so it's thinking, who's your target audience? Um, Sometimes I think my target audience here transcends any one discipline. Maybe this is a, a result that will be of interest to immunologists and geneticists and ecologists. Okay, well, what's the journal that provides that bridge? And the answer is there are actually very few places that will do that. And I'd love to see the American naturalist today really is ecology, evolution, and behavior with some genetics thrown in. But I'd love to have a place where there's a lot more biology-wide conversation. And I actually see from my own perspective, the momentum is moving in biology as a whole towards greater integration across sub-disciplines. In in the past couple of decades, you know, if you go back 50 years, universities had biology departments. And then, or maybe they had zoology and botany. And then the zoology and botany departments fused together um, because they realized, oh, we're all studying ecology and evolution and physiology, just different organisms. But conversely, biology departments tended to split in the past half century. And the molecular and cellular biologists went one way, and the neurobiologists another, and the organismal biologists like ecology and evolution went yet another way, and founded different departments, and we go to different journals, we go to different funding sources, and that split alleviated some political battles, alleviated some cultural misunderstandings. If a, if a, a molecular biologist sees their colleague publishing in the American Naturalist, they might literally say, the American Naturist? What kind of journal is this? Um, and, and so I think there was some reason for those fissions But I see the reverse happening now. I see fusions where today cancer biologists are using the principles of evolutionary genetics to study the evolutionary dynamics that are happening among cell lines within tumors. And we need more conversation because the cancer biologists are reinventing the wheel. They're reinventing fire um, in their attempt to uh, understand cancer they're having to rediscover evolutionary biology. And wouldn't it be more convenient if they just were in the same room and publishing in the same venues as evolutionary biologists? And so I think there's a great deal of benefit to be had by breaking down these barriers that we built for political reasons and financial reasons inside universities. And I'd love the American naturalist to be at the forefront of that. Again, we're the slow moving ship. I can't, I don't get cancer evolution submissions. I don't get uh, immune evolution or genetic submissions that often. We get some. Uh, And so, you know, it's a slow turn, but I'd love this to be a place where biologists in general could speak to each other across boundaries and across departments. Um, And and there's a history to that attitude. Um, The editor-in-chief of the journal a little over 100 years ago 
wrote an editorial, I think this was around uh, 1895, in which he said, what is the purpose of the American naturalist? What is the purpose of a journal? And he said, his answer was, it's the place where we bring together the people who wouldn't speak to each other otherwise and try and help them have a conversation. And I'd, I'd love to see that disciplinary silos break down. And I think journals can very much be a place that facilitates that. But it's a, a little unclear how to get the ball rolling in that direction. That's, a, that's, that's fascinating. I have a voice from the past speaking to today. I mean, a wonderful quote and, and so relevant. And, and it brings us back precisely to what we were just talking about, this idea of interdisciplinarity or intradisciplinarity inside of biology, but it's speaking more clearly to each other. It would be, uh, this is an open question to listeners and an open question to anyone who cares about uh, journals today. It would be interesting to figure out how do we get these tankers, how do we get these cargo ships to start heading the same course? What, What could be any of the first moves that might be getting the cancer biologists submitting elsewhere? Um, to get the other biologists paying attention to their work and noticing, oh, we can do this together. I mean, as a non-scientist, it would seem to me almost a natural response because so much that I've, I've seen of science is all collaboration. I mean, it's a necessity. So That's very true. And again, collaboration usually begins with a grant proposal. Oh, let's write a grant together. And so maybe maybe we're asking a little bit the wrong question here, and maybe the solution to that is first to say, how do we create funding structures that encourage risk-taking, bridge-building? And then we need venues that do that as well. We need conferences. No, normally, if I'm going to go to conferences this year, I'm going to go to the evolution, the evolution meeting where I'll talk to other evolution biologists, and I'm going to go to a stickleback meeting um, and talk to other stickleback biologists. But why wouldn't it be nice to be at a conference where we're tossed together with people from very different backgrounds um, in a small enough venue that we're not going to recreate our silos just by going to different rooms. Um, And there are a few places that do that. Um, And it may be that the start to that needs to be more organic and more centered in conferences and funding opportunities. And then we just need the journals to be, again, this recipient to say, yes, we are here. When you when you do this kind of interdisciplinary idea advancing work, we're here for you. Yeah, that seems entirely logical to use some uh, biological terminology I've picked up along the way. It's an upstream issue, isn't it? I mean, we're dealing with the funding and the conferences on the one end. And as you very, very, very clearly stated, I mean, the the receptive, the tail end is the journals. And I think they would be quick to respond to uh, something like that. I mean, here you are as editor-in-chief saying (laughs) quite clearly. Um, To get back a little bit to the... The idea behind uh, this focus in my podcast on on the research journal, uh, part of what I'm trying to do is, is start conversations, and and we're broaching a number of them here. Uh, one of the conversations, though, is 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 meant clearly for authors. The other conversation is clearly meant for whoever my guest happens to be. In this case, uh, you, uh, Mr. Balmick, as a editor in chief. Um, for authors, I think they would be very interested to know as the 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 standard of research the research article 
I see very many early career researchers struggling with with this format. What is it from an author's eyes that they need to be paying attention to in an introduction, in the ever-increasing important abstract, uh, in the titles? Um, Would there be any pointers from from your perspective that you would perhaps uh, put out there for authors thinking about this format? Yeah, there there are a lot of parts to that question. Titles, um, say what you find. We are showing you that such and such is true. Um, And it's very tempting, and I've done this as well, to have catchy, clever titles, and they can draw attention, and that can be very beneficial. Um, Puns or cultural references can be very entertaining. They can also be a little exclusionary if the cultural reference is um, uh, is uh, specific to a particular nation, for example, or, or culture. Um, but they can be effective at the same time. So finding a good balance there, uh, just to make sure you're not being obscure in the process. Um, abstracts and introductions both ultimately to my mind, I, I like to tell my own students when I'm advising them on writing that scientific articles really are very much like sonnets, right? When we take English class in secondary school and high school, we're taught the structure of sonnets and we study Shakespearean sonnets and they have a very particular form. Um, and the same is true in science because it helps readers navigate the process. If I'm reading a paper on a subject that I'm intimately familiar with, I don't need to read the whole introduction because part of the introduction is telling me, here's the body of knowledge that serves as the background for what we're going to do. And I know that material already. I can jump to the last paragraph of the introduction where they say, here's the thing we don't really know. And here's what we're going to do about it. Um, or if I'm in a hurry and I really want to know just what's the point of this paper, I can read the introduction and the discussion and walk away with an idea of what the message is, but I'm not evaluating the evidence or how much I trust the evidence, or I want to go in greater depth. So I zoom into here's the analysis, here's the methods and the results. And sometimes I might skip the intro and discussion and say, okay, what did they do? And what do they find? And then I come to my own conclusions. And so it provides a choose-your-own-adventure reading experience where the reader can can sample from the, the package to get the bits that they need. And they know how to do that because it follows this sonnet structure. The other element is... Uh, what a good friend and colleague of mine, Andrew Hendry, refers to as the baby werewolf silver bullet arc of storytelling in a scientific paper. He says the baby is the, the cute thing that we're all, we all like. And so you start by introducing the, author, the readers to, here's the thing that we're all familiar with and we're satisfied by and we feel good about. And then it's threatened by a werewolf is threatening the baby. And the werewolf is, here's this problem with the current narrative in our discipline, or here's the thing that we actually have been assuming, but we don't really know it's true, or some challenge to that status quo that we're happy with. 
And then the silver bullet is, here's my experiment, here's my mathematical model that's going to take care of that werewolf and resolve that. And so building a narrative tension, you get readers in the door with the baby. Okay, yes, I like babies. I'm 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 engaged. Oh, now I'm worried about the I'm worried about that baby. There's something I didn't get. Okay, it's resolved. Um, and of course, you don't want to overdo it because you don't want to misrepresent your science. You certainly can't say that you're solving a problem that you aren't solving. But at the end of the day, that strategy, I often refer my students to this blog post that Andrew wrote about the baby werewolf and silver bullet um, that that I find extremely helpful and often does help resolve students' approach to, to writing. All of that said, that sonnet approach that I just pitched is it's this nice formula that helps us pick and choose the bits that we want to read as readers. It can be very constraining, especially when a journal says, your paper must be no more than 1,500 words exactly. Um, and I say, well, but I can't say what I need to say in that space. Um, we love concise, to-the-point writing, but artificial word counts can be a, a barrier as well to clarity. And so there are good reasons why people struggle with scientific writing. And one of them is this artificiality of some of the rules. Um, and so I like to say at the American Naturalist, uh, and I'm quoting a former editor, Mark McPeak here, papers should be as long as they need to be to clearly make their point and not one word longer. So clarity, completeness, but concise. And finding that balance is tricky. Yes, indeed. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> I think, something very many authors out there who might be listening uh, would, would very readily concur with. Uh, another area of the paper that they often struggle with is the discussion, because there they... And I, I, I do believe that there's very often this notion the results speak for themselves. And yet, I think any editor and very many other more senior authors would say they never do. <laughs> and it's it's getting them to speak that I think challenges a lot of authors in that particular section, which is one of its principal purposes. That's very true. The that's again where the reviewers that that distance that unfamiliarity helps because we can look at this and say. Yeah, you know, I understand your results, but then in your discussion, you say things that I don't think are supported by your results, or I don't quite see how your results connect to this thing that you're claiming. And so, again, there's this tension, this balance for authors between you want to convey excitement and novelty, and we're doing this very cool thing, but you also can't exaggerate that. You can't, you shouldn't claim novelty for something that's not novel. Um, and so authors do sometimes feel an obligation to inflate the novelty or importance of what they're doing. And often the way they do that is by ignoring prior work or not really fully engaging with prior work. And uh, we're all busy. We all miss things that we should have read and didn't. And so that's not always... Um, intentional. It's not always malicious. In fact, I think it's very rarely malicious. Um, but it really, we have an obligation to say, oh, here's what the community knows already, really. And we're advancing it in this way. 
and finding the right balance of conveying excitement and novelty without exaggerating it. Uh, and then being true to the results, this is what I can say uh, without trying to inflate it beyond the scope of what my evidence can speak to. Um, because there's a temptation, a very natural human ten- temptation to puff things up a bit. And, and we need to just dial that back a little bit. I also said that the focus is here uh, for you as a place to say um, what it is that, that you care about um, in uh, scientific publishing. You've said quite a lot of that already. So um, <laughs> if you feel that it's been said, then we can, we can pass on. But uh, just to frame it in a way that might uh, give you a different thought on uh, what I'm referring to, I, I introduced this uh, focus with the idea that there's five participants. There's the executives, the editors, the reviewers, the authors, and the readers involved in, in the entire process. There's probably more, but I'm, I'm trying to represent uh, as many as I can in, in, in the most abstract way. And I suppose the the thing that I like to give uh, guests the opportunity to do is to say something to one of the other groups. So if there was a part of the way things are done in um, the publication of scientific knowledge from any of those groups that you would like to point up and say, wouldn't it be better if we could just dot, dot, dot? (laughs) Or if there was any other um, sort of message that you would like to get out to any of them? Um, I I suppose this would be the opportunity. (laughs) That's that's, that's what I'm... Yeah, well, I have I have several thoughts there that are competing for space. Uh, one of them, cycling back around to one of your initial questions, what's the role of journals? And then subsequently, you brought up Retraction Watch, and I just want to add something that I, I feel like I I wish I had said earlier is a big part of the journal is gatekeeping because we want to keep things out that are not good quality. And one way that things can be bad quality is falsification and fabrication. And I have unfortunately had to deal with some cases of this that got attention in Retraction Watch and some attention in the media. Um, We had multiple retractions in the journal from a particular author. And it really gave me an appreciation that one of the roles of a journal that's distinct from papers being put on a preprint is that there's somebody who is responsible for that journal whose job it is, sometimes they shirk this job, unfortunately, whose job it is to uh, ensure the quality of the material that's in there and intervene when necessary to retract or push corrections. Um, Science is often said to be self-correcting. It's not. It's corrected by individuals who find a problem and do something about it to fix it. And that requires effort. It requires groups of people evaluating claims of fraud or misconduct or errors and saying, is this really uh, a, a false outcome in this paper? And what do we do about it? Is it a correction? Is it a retraction? That takes a great deal of effort, and you need people who are responsible for doing that in order to carry out this function of scientific correction. Um, And journals have an institutional structure that enables that. You can submit comments to a journal, and then there's an editor and an editorial board and reviewers who can evaluate those critiques and do something about it. And so I think that's a crucial element. Um, 
And we have no idea how much fabrication or fraud happens that we don't notice. And that's a huge concern for me. And so one thing that I'd love now to follow up on your question, I'm going to speak to the other editors um, rather than speaking to the potential authors or my readership. Other editors, we need communication between journals to coordinate on actions that promote reproducibility and rigor in our science that we're publishing. And one of those actions is we've made the transition recently to not only requiring that the all of the data underlying a paper be archived, but we want the computer code that ran the analyses to be archived. And we have a team of data editors starting uh, about nine months ago, team of data editors who are checking these repositories to make sure that they're complete. And it turns out that a lot of journals have been requiring data archiving for the past half decade to decade. It turns out that that's been not policed effectively. And the vast majority, or at least a majority of data archives that exist at this point are incomplete. They're missing key files, they're missing key variables, or they're just not documented in a way that makes them usable. And we need to do better about that. And so we need editors to coordinate with each other to improve standards for uh, policing quality of data archives, introducing code archiving so that we have A to Z, the ability for a reader to log in, get the data, check the code, make sure that it works, and make sure that the results reported in the paper actually show what's claimed in the paper. And I think that's going to be a significant improvement. Well, thank you very much for that. That's a that's just the kind of message that uh, I hoped uh, to be able to get across this platform here on my podcast. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, thank you also, Dan. You've been very generous with your time. I, I would like to close up though with one last question. There's a there's a topic that I mentioned briefly, and uh, we haven't been able to explore. So I understand if your question, if your answer here is is short, but it, it's it's important in its education, um, as as I mentioned there a little while back, and. I'm going to just point the, the question into this direction. You've mentioned that you also teach. So this, this is another reason that I'm very interested in what you have to say. I've heard current editors uh, tell me that when they initially entered into the reviewing process, when they initially also then entered into publishing, it had been for them all a bit of a black box, a bit magical. Yeah, <laughs> they hadn't really understood how all of that worked. And I suppose my question is, is well, what would you want students now or even postdocs now, um, to be doing and learning about the publishing arm of science so that the transition from studenthood and, 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 and mentoring up into really the publishing scientist uh, becomes a smoother transition. What I'd really love to do, and this applies to both publishing and grant proposals, is I'd love to have a collection of... Um, here's a first draft paper that was submitted to a journal. Um, and here are the reviews that it received. And here's the second draft. Um, and here are the reviews that it received. And here's the third and final draft. And here are the editorial letters at each of those stages. And I'd like to have a collection of uh, these A to Z examples and spend time with students um, and say, okay, here's the initial submission. Write your own reviews. Okay, now see what the reviewers wrote, 
Okay, how did your reviews compare to the reviews? Now, what would you as an author do to this paper to respond to those reviews? Okay, here's what the authors did. And I've, I've never been through this myself, and I've not actually been teaching a course that really lent itself to taking the time to do this. But I love the idea of walking students through a curated example of the A to Z process. And then the other element that is really a black box, I think most people in the end do get the, the review process and they have the gist of that. But then there are things that happen at the journal outside of the review process, the, the routing of the paper, the way it's passed through from editor to associate editor and those decision steps. And then even once it's accepted, it goes to get copy edited and it goes to get typeset and that takes time. And that time requires people. We have professionals whose job it is. This is their career and they need a salary and they need uh, health insurance here in the US uh, to be paid for. And so it's their career to take these accepted manuscripts and tidy them up and get them formatted and get them out in a way that uh, avoids embarrassment of silly spelling errors or typos or things like that. Um, and, and that's a value added. And I think one part of the conversation too is how do we fund publishing? That's a whole other hour that we can talk about. Um, why do we fund publishing? We pay for it because there's a service provided. And that service is provided not simply by reviewers who are typically unpaid, but by people whose career it is full time to handle papers to get them to a final product. And I think students really would benefit from looking behind the scenes at what happens. I think that you've just you've just sketched out a fantastic course, <laughs> two courses that could could be held and, and and benefit so many students out there. Thank, thank you very much. Um, that is Daniel Volnick, editor of editor in chief of the American Naturalist and also professor of evolution and ecology at the University of Connecticut. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Dan. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much for having me on. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.